pray with me. Jesus, you were as I, tempted and tried, human. The word became flesh, bore my sin and death, and now you're risen. Lord, as we hear your word today, um, as you talk about our condition as it stands without you, and our condition now that you have, have remade it. Um, give us insight into your words and let them sink not only into our, our ears and our minds, uh, but make it all the way to our hearts, uh, that our lives can be changed, that we can go forth and, and live as your renewed people. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. In the name of Jesus. Today we close out our series on the resistance. Um, we started out by talking about the, the Reformation and kind of as a, as a resistance movement. In the last two weeks we've talked about resisting the devil and resisting the world. Uh, today we finish by considering an enemy even closer to home, ourselves. Today we're asking what it means to resist our own sinful nature. And so I'd like to, uh, to start answering that question by, by telling you a story um, that was shared with me by my high school tennis coach, uh, and it took place during the time um, when he was dating his then-girlfriend and now-wife, uh, despite what you're about to hear. So uh, he was meeting her extended family for the first time, including her niece, and her niece was like three or four years old, um, and you know, smooth operator that he was. He figured, you know, if I can get on, on this little girl's good side, I'll, I'll win over the whole family easily. Unfortunately, it didn't start out so well. Um, they were in an, an icy parking lot, and he thought, you know, I'll, I'll offer to carry her so that she won't slip and fall. And so he picked her up and started to walk, and he slipped and dropped her. Um, so things, you know, were not off to a good start. She kind of figured she wanted nothing to do with him uh, from that point on. But uh, he wasn't going to give up. So in an effort to kind of make things up to her, he went and he rented her favorite movie and he bought her favorite ice cream and, and brought it to the house where they were staying. He got the ice cream all ready and put the toppings on it and everything and then invited the, the little girl uh, to go down to the basement with him where the TV was. Now he felt pretty confident that uh, you know, she was starting to warm up to him as he kind of you know, had her lead the way down the stairs. <laughs> Unfortunately, he was wearing slippery socks. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, like the first step down, he slipped, kicked her in the backside, <laughs> sent her flying down the stairs, and then he tumbled down after her and landed right on top of her. Um, <laughs> and so the rest of the family heard this loud crash, and they heard this little girl screaming at the top of her lungs, and they run and they find the two of them moaning in pain at the bottom of the stairs with ice cream everywhere. Like I said, he still managed to get married to, uh, to her, so I guess it worked out okay. Um, but here's the point. Despite our best efforts, we are often our own worst enemies. There's a famous saying that comes from a, a 1970s comic. Um, let's see here. There it is. We have met the enemy, and he is us. 
So this saying has been used in a number of contexts since, um, but it's especially true when it comes to our spiritual struggle. As we confessed together earlier, we are poor, miserable sinners. We are by nature sinful and unclean. We are a people with treasonous hearts and double minds. The scriptures teach us that we are actually this way from birth and and even before, um, (laughs) that we are set to self-destruct from the very beginning. So King David writes in Psalm 51, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is a reality that we've come to call original sin, now that, that we are born with sin as this hereditary disease. Now, sin can certainly be something we do, and it is, uh, but in the first place, sin is a condition. Sin is a sickness. The prophet Jeremiah has said that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Through Adam's sin in the garden, we now have what Luther calls the old Adam hanging around our necks, dragging us down at every turn. We're always tripping over our own feet, getting in our own way. Like a diabetic with a sweet tooth, we are our own worst enemy, but, but it's hard to admit it, especially in this eye world of, of iPhones and iPads, which, which are themselves full of, of selfies and self-congratulatory social media posts. But we'll never get anywhere unless we're honest about the struggle, unless we admit that we are the eye in the storm. In the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, um, this senior demon named Screwtape is, is training his nephew how to tempt human beings. Um, and at one point he says, you must bring him to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself which are perfectly clear to anyone who's ever lived in the same house with him or worked in the same office. Satan wants us to be blind to our sin, to deny that that we have within ourselves a deadly propensity to resist God. But as the Reformers wrote in the Lutheran Confessions, Christ was given to us to bear both sin and penalty and to destroy the rule of the devil, sin, and death. So we cannot know his blessings unless we recognize our evil. And so that's exactly what Paul is doing in our epistle lesson today from Romans chapter 7. Paul opens up about his struggle with with his own tendency to transgress God's goodwill for his life. Now in Romans, uh, I think it's helpful to keep in mind, Paul was was writing to a a place he'd never been, writing to to people at least for for the most part he had never ever met before. And and so you might think that, that Paul would be tempted to make himself look and sound as good as possible to to share a more flattering selfie in this archaic form of social media. But he doesn't. Paul finds his confidence in his identity in Christ and in Christ alone. And and so he boasts of his weakness because they point out more and more how much he has to rely on Christ. And so Paul ends up admitting that, that he is of the flesh, sold under sin. He says that sin... And that evil which dwells in him is always close at hand. He admits that he does not do 
what he wants to do, and, and he does what he doesn't want to do. You know, Mike did a great job with the, the tongue twister there that is Romans 7. You know, Paul says that, that he knows God's law, and, and he loves it. He knows it's right, but he, but he can't carry it out. He doesn't have the ability. He says that, that he has the desire to do what is right, but, but not the ability to follow through on it. We will never get anywhere in our fight against the flesh, against our sinful nature, unless we, we can confess, like Paul, that, that we are, as the, the nice Latin saying goes, simul justus et peccator, which, which means at the same time we are saints and sinners. We have to admit that though our spirit is indeed willing, our flesh is weak. Jesus once told Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. And we as Christians see both of these realities at work in us. Though we have been made new, in this life we are not yet renewed perfectly or completely. The old Adam still clings to our nature. It's like a parasite that that vies to control every single one of our our thoughts and, and words and actions. So what can you do about this? Well, Get over yourself. Now, normally when we say these words, what we mean is, you know, and don't be arrogant. Don't be so full of yourself. And, and it does mean that here too, uh, in some ways. You know, Paul, for example, had previously put a lot of stock into his own righteousness, how he followed the Torah like a good Pharisee and, and how he uh, had more reason for confidence in his flesh than any of his peers. But then he met Jesus and, and he found out that none of that mattered at all. If you're confident because, because you go to church, because you've avoided those really scandalous sins, because you're a harder worker or a better employee than your colleagues, you're putting your confidence in yourself. And uh, eventually, like Paul, you'll see that all of that means nothing. Get over yourself. But in this context, that phrase uh, takes on an even deeper meaning. As we've been saying, uh, you are your own worst enemy, born into sin, set for self-destruction. But God calls you to resist your own sinful nature, not to indulge it. God calls you to get over yourself, to overcome your flesh and its sinful desires. We have to wage war against the the sin that's inside of us because whether we like it or not or or whether we even admit it or not, it is waging war against us. A few weeks ago, um, right before this series started, our Old Testament lesson was the story of Cain and Abel. And uh, we heard that again today, just the first part of it actually. Um, But that included God's warning to Cain where he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. I can think of countless times in my life where those words came to mind and I did not heed God's warning. Cain doesn't either, and it it destroys him. First Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We have met the enemy, and he is us. So we must fight. We must resist. We must not go on sinning so that grace may increase, 
That's giving in to the sinful nature and letting it determine our relationship with God. No, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. You know, we just got done singing together to God, rid me of myself. I belong to you. Are you praying that prayer in your daily life? Or are you praying that prayer with your daily life? King Solomon in his Proverbs says that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Are your walls up against Satan's temptations or are you just letting him walk in and go wherever he wants? Are you paying attention so that you can foil his attempts to make common cause with your flesh? If not, if you are letting your sinful nature control you and dictate your actions, if you're letting it determine what your your thoughts are, what your sensibilities are, then you, who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ, are allowing Satan to regain ground, to, to just slowly walk you back in to the dominion of darkness. As Paul says in the next chapter of Romans, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So don't be a slave to sin any longer. Of course, it's easy to, dis- to get dis- discouraged, you know, to, to look at the life that you're leading and, and to see how prevalent sin is and, and to lament because you feel you can never win. But spiritual warfare is itself a sign of life. It's a tough slog. It's, it's a war of, of attrition with, with really small victories and, and constant setbacks. But it is a battle you will win. Because it's a battle to be what God has already made you, holy and and righteous, a saint. And so you should be seeing progress over time. That's, That's what the Holy Spirit does as he sanctifies us. But when you don't see that progress, take heart. Because the struggle itself shows that the Holy Spirit is having his say in the shaping of your character. And that's really good news. Because even though the war that that you wage against the sinful nature is an internal battle, it's not one that you have to fight alone. God urges us to get help, to allow him and and his spirit and even his people to to strengthen us and encourage us in the fight. You know, when the Americans were having trouble defeating the British, uh, at least partly due to, to the loyalists within their midst and everything else that was going on, they enlisted the help of the French and they won the revolution. Enlist the help of someone you can trust. Share with them your your struggle with that specific sin that that you're dealing with right now. Be as open as as Paul was and and upfront with them about about what you're dealing with, uh, just like Paul did with the Romans, so that they can provide you with, with good Christian accountability. Come to God, praying and crying out every hour that that He would not let you fall back into sin. Dive into the word of God every day because setting the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You know, Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh counts for nothing at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And come to worship weekly to to receive the gifts that God gives us in his sacraments. 
gifts of absolution spoken to you as from the mouth of God himself, the true body and blood of Jesus where, where he brings his forgiveness for us in Holy Communion. The absolution that's given again and again is, as we're reminded of our baptism, as we witness others being brought into God's family. You know, Luther says in his catechism that, that baptism indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live in righteousness and purity forever. In the large catechism, Luther says, baptism is the slaying of the old Adam and the resurrection of the new man, both of which actions must continue in us our whole life long. A Christian life is nothing else than a daily baptism, always purging out whatever pertains to the old Adam so that whatever belongs to the new man may come forth. Through his gifts of accountability and prayer and especially word and sacrament, we get help from God and are strengthened in the fight to serve him wholeheartedly. Without God's help, um, our flesh would be far, far too strong for us. So isn't it wonderful that God himself came in our flesh? We sang this a second ago too. John writes, the word, that's Jesus, became what? What? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, not full of sin and weakness, full of grace and truth. Today's the last Sunday in the church year. Next week, we begin our journey to the manger where where God himself was first seen with human eyes incarnate in the flesh. And it was in the flesh that the word incarnate took your sins upon himself and and put them to death on the cross. His flesh was nailed to the tree. And there the glory of God was revealed, and all flesh saw it together. Paul writes in Romans 8, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because in baptism, Paul says two chapters earlier, we were buried with Christ into death. At the baptismal font, we put off the body of the flesh and put on Christ. And we were gathered together with his people and buried together with him into death. Paul says that that Jesus took took our record of debt that stood against us and and nailed it to the cross, setting it aside. He says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, the devil and the world. And that through baptism, we share in his death and we also share in his victory. This is how uh, Paul can say, and, and we along with him, in fact, can we all say this together? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow, I've been crucified with Christ. It doesn't sound like a good thing, but it's just about the best thing there is. 
And the best part about being crucified with Christ is what comes next. Paul says in Romans, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And again, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Though our flesh to this day wars against us and the God who has saved us from our sin, that God has not given up on our flesh. Rather, through Jesus, we are promised bodily resurrection from the dead. One day, your flesh will be made new, your, your true human nature restored to that which it was before sin ever infected it at all. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above for him. Who will rescue you from this body of death? The one who took on a human body himself and, and who gave it up to death for you and then was raised with it from the dead. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Earlier in the message, I, I quoted this famous saying from that 1970s comic strip, we have found the enemy and he is us. And I've heard that quoted many times and, and I uh, didn't really know where it came from and um, I found that out in my research you know, earlier this week. And then I found out something I think even maybe a little more interesting. That saying, we have found the enemy and he is us, was actually modified from an earlier famous saying uh, that was found in a very short letter from U.S. Navy Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry. Um, his, I think his best-known quote, although we don't have any historical evidence that he ever said it, was, Hazard is my middle name. Never mind, sorry. Oliver Hazard Perry. That's a cool name, though. Can we agree on that? Yeah. So Oliver Hazard Perry wrote this really short letter to, to General uh, William Henry Harrison, who would later be president of the United States, um, after Perry and his men had decisively won the Battle of Lake Erie in the War of 1812. Uh, so here's the letter in its entirety. Dear General, we have met the enemy, and they are... Ours. Two ships, two brigs, one schooner, and one sloop. Yours with great respect and esteem, O.H. Perry. <laughs> Can you imagine winning this, this enormous naval battle, you know, in which kind of the, the future of your country hinged, um, and you win it decisively, and then you uh, send that letter. Isn't that awesome? Right now, it may very well be true that, that we have met the enemy and he is us, but we have won. And have conquered nevertheless. Through Christ we have victory over the devil, the world, and even our own sinful nature. Next week we begin the season of Advent. Um, and with it we're beginning a new congregation-wide sermon series called Advent Preppers. And we look forward to uh, having Pastor Fenske kick that off for us. Until then, uh, let your mouth and your life declare, We have met the enemy and they are ours. And go out and live out the resistance. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace of God, which transcends our understanding, guard your hearts 
and your minds in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.